Welcome to this episode of Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with me, Ken MacDonald. I'm a former director of public prosecutions and a barrister practising at Matrix Chambers. And with me, Tim Owen, also a barrister at Matrix Chambers, specialising in crime, public law, human rights law and occasionally media law. Well, for the last week or so, last couple of weeks, media law, privacy law, um, the behaviour of the press, the ethics of the press have been very much in the news with the Hugh Edwards case. And so Tim and I are particularly delighted that we've got one of the country's leading media lawyers to discuss with us the issues that arise from all of this and where we think uh, this might all be going. So um, we're delighted to welcome to this episode of the Double Jeopardy podcast, Gavin Miller, King's Counsel. Gavin, thanks very much for joining us. Well, I'm delighted to, to be on and I'm a big fan of the podcast. Great. Thanks, Gavin. Gavin studied law at uh, Oxford, was called to the bar in, I think, 1984 and did pupillage in Derry Irvin's chambers where Tony Blair um, was at that time, I think, the junior tenant. His first tenancy was at one Dr. Johnson's buildings, the chambers of Emlyn Hooson. Um, and there between 1984 and 1990, he had a general common law practice doing a bit of everything, as many people did in those days, but mostly crime. In 1990, he became a founder member of Doughty Street Chambers, which Tim, of course, joined a few years later. And he gradually moved to doing mainly civil work, especially employment law, acting for trade unions and public law, election law for political parties. And by 2000, he'd started practicing media law as a junior. uh, And his practice in this area took off in silk very dramatically, particularly after the passage of the Human Rights Act. Uh, which changed fairly dramatically, I think, the nature of our media free speech law. Um, Gavin took Silk in 2000, and we were delighted in 2014 when he joined us at Matrix Chambers. Gavin, we we normally start by asking our guests something about what brought them to the law, what interested them in law, um, and why they took up the particular specialisations that they did. So you did law at university, so you were obviously interested in the subjects, assume you were interested in the subject from quite an early age. Yes, well, my initial uh, interest at school was public speaking and debating. And I decided that I would like to be a courtroom advocate, which of course meant I had to do law. So, so that followed on from my desire to be a courtroom advocate. And like a lot of your contributors on this podcast of, of our sort of age, uh, I was gripped by uh, the Crown, the the Granada TV Crown Court series in the seventies, um, and the watching the advocates on that. Um, so I, that's how yeah. I ended up uh, doing doing law. My, my I come from a family of journalists and always wanted to practice media law, but it's quite an exclusive area, so you couldn't get into it immediately in my situation. And I was also very interested in doing what we used to call civil liberties work in in the nineteen eighties. So. Uh, I came to it through that, really. Well, how, did, how did the switch take place? I mean, you, you, it, you, you told us before that it was from uh, around 2000. What, what happened? What got you? What pitched you into it? Well, I'd, I'd done a lot of libel reading in, in Fleet Street newspapers. Um, I'd done some uh, junior litigation work in media with, with Jeffrey Robertson at Doughty Street. Um, but then the Human Rights Act came in, as, as you say, and Article 8 and Article 10 came into our law. And uh, I wrote a, a, co-wrote a book on media law and human rights to, to coincide with the arrival of the Act, which was quite influential. Uh, and because I think, you know, because I spoke the language of human rights, which was now being infused into our media law, it made me a more popular choice for, for a lot of solicitors to do these media law cases. And Gavin, let's just let's just rewind before we carry on with with media law. Um, you were also uh, a Westminster councillor, a Labour councillor in in Westminster. I think was that in the nineties? It was in the latter half of the nineteen eighties and the first half of the nineteen nineties. And of course, that was uh, famously involving um, Dame Shirley Porter, who was the leader of Westminster Council, and she ended up in. Uh, massive legal problems uh, on a number of fronts, in particular allegations of gerrymandering, i.e. selling homes for votes in marginal wards in Westminster. You were involved in all of that. Did you ever think of going on from being a councillor to being an MP? I did, and and uh, three of my colleagues from that group on the council became Labour MPs in 1997. 
uh, in the Labour landslide. I, I didn't stand in the end and, and decided not to become an MP and a full-time politician, partly because it's a very demanding job, and I'd realised that being a councillor. Uh, you need certain attributes. You need, you need to want to, to, to do the politics and do the community work. Um, and and I, I always found it a little difficult to toe a party line rather than express my own opinions and views. <laughs> yeah. And I, I accept the need for a whip in Parliament, but I don't think I'd have been very good at hearing to it. Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be doing very well in today's Labour Party then. They're probably, probably Keir Starmer would be on the point of throwing you out for insubordination. Probably, you, you, probably made, you, probably, you probably made the right choice to stay with the law. But Gavin, one thing I'm interested in is that it seems to be the case in media law that people get reputations um, either as claimants' lawyers or defendants' lawyers. You're very much a, 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 a newspaper lawyer. You represent the journalists, the newspapers, uh, rather than the, the claimants. And that's what you're known for. And you've been in many of the biggest cases for news organisations. So, first of all, am, am I right in saying that people tend to specialise? And, and secondly, why did you choose to be uh, a newspaper lawyer rather than a claimants' lawyer? People do, people do specialise. It's a specialisation that comes upon them because litigating libel and privacy cases involves very different roles on each side of the case. So you develop an expertise on one or other side of the case, generally, as, as your career develops. If you're a claimant lawyer, you identify the nub of the libel or the privacy claim, the sting, the most serious part of it, and you, you sue on that. If you're a defendant lawyer... You have to assess what's your best defence and how you can set it up. And that usually involves understanding how the story was produced and what the public interest issues are. And instructing solicitors and solicitors know that and you develop a specialism uh, on one side or the other. There are people who do, who do both, uh, but uh, increasingly it's a specialisation. And certainly for more senior barristers who had a few years of doing it, and have developed one of those specialisms, um, they tend to concentrate on one side rather than the other. I, I mean, I, I, my preference was always to do media law and free speech law uh, on the defendant side because of my family's background in, in, in journalism and my, my interest in journalism, um, which is not to, denigrate, not to denigrate the claimant lawyers, but it was just my preference. Is it the case that, that media organisations might be reluctant to hire uh, as uh, uh, their barrister someone who's got a reputation as a claimant lawyer? Yes, I mean there there is there is a reluctance to do that. There's a bit of there's a bit of you know do, do, the, do you know the tricks of the trade on the other side and do you know the tricks of the trade on our side and you're not supposed to cross over and take them to the to the other side. So um, yeah, no, there is a bit of that definitely. I think that's increasingly the case in criminal law actually that people in the old days used to do a bit of prosecuting and a bit of defending, but it's much more common now for people to specialise and for the prosecution to want a, a, a prosecuting barrister and for defence solicitors to want to, to have a defending barrister. We could argue about whether that's good or a bad thing, but it certainly seems to be the case. Gavin, let's move on to some of the, the cases, because obviously underpinning this episode of Double Jeopardy is the Hugh Edwards affair, um, which is obviously... Um, been dominating the news cycle recently and, and has potentially great ramifications in in your field. But can we start a little earlier than that? I mean, you acted in the Cliff Richard case and the Cliff Richard case seems to have set the mood music for quite a lot of what's followed. The famous um, episode with the BBC hiring helicopters to film a police raid on his house, a completely misconceived police raid, which uh, was pursuing completely misconceived allegations uh, about uh, Cliff Richard. I, I met Cliff Richard in the House of Lords uh, after this period and he, I have to say he, he, he did seem to be completely broken by what had happened to him. He was still many months later absolutely distraught, convinced that his reputation would never recover, uh, really really shattered by it and I think most people um, seeing how that case unfolded were quite pleased that the court found against the BBC and found if you like in Cliff Richard's favour that the BBC had been wrong uh, to publicise the matter in the way that they did and that he'd been done a significant injustice. You acted in the case for the BBC. What, what's your take on it and what significance do you think that case had for what's followed? Well, I think the first thing to say about it is you must remember the BBC did that story at a time when it was thought generally in the media, notwithstanding developments in our law of privacy, that you could name suspect who'd been arrested in a police investigation. That had always been the case in our law. 
Um, you stood to be sued in libel if you got it wrong, uh, but you could publish and be damned. You could, you could run the story. Uh, and in a sense, the law overtook what they, <laughs> what they understood was their journalistic entitlement. So it was rather rough on the BBC. On the other hand, as the law has developed, one of the critical things that you have to look at, to come back to your point, Ken, when you're considering running a story that may engage somebody's private right, is what will be the impact of that story on their private and family life? It seems an obvious point that, that that's what, what you need to assess, but it can differ widely between different cases. You know, the impact on a politician may be much less than a private individual and that sort of thing. So um, I do understand uh, the, 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 the point you make and in, in had the story been done a few years later, I think the BBC would have been much more, much better equipped to assess the pros and cons of doing the story from a privacy point of view. But it just came up very early in the development of our law. I mean, Gavin, uh, of course, the development of privacy law, as, as you've hinted at, is hugely influenced by the Human Rights Act and, and the influence of Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights and the first big privacy case. Uh, involving Article 8 was, of course, the Naomi Campbell case, the publication by the Daily Mirror of, of photographs of her coming out of uh, uh, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, uh, and then there was the Aloha Lo actor um, who was photographed while he was in hospital. And so there were, there were cases that were not to do with this issue of um, uh, whether you were under investigation. Um, but, of course, the big change was the Leveson inquiry, the Christopher Jeffries case, and the utter vilification of that uh, man who was wrongly accused of, of murder, released, and then someone else was convicted. Um, and by then, the police had developed, or in the wake of that case, the police developed their own policy of not naming suspects. And the Leveson inquiry supported it. And there was a unanimous view that this was an area of, of, of an aspect of private life that could cause enormous damage if you revealed that someone was under investigation before they were charged, because they may end up never being charged and the damage would be done. But my impression has been that, I mean, the media still don't really accept that as a principle. It's, 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 it's a reluctant acknowledgement or acceptance, obviously, that the law is what it is, but... The, I mean, is that fair? Do you think that's a fair observation? Well, I don't think they've been reluctant to accept it. I mean, they, they have stopped doing a lot of stories that they would have done before. That's just the fact of the matter. They may not like it, if that's what you mean, but it has had an impact on the stories that, that, that they report. You, you see a lot less of the kiss and tell tabloid type stories, and you see a lot less of the uh, of of the, the the police arrest and investigation stories. No, I know, I, I but but there's still this sense that that journalists, uh, many journalists identify this as an enormous restriction on their ability to to conduct investigative journalism. Yes, and I, and I, I think I think rightly so because they think that the the bar has been set too high or too proclaimant in terms of a general expectation of privacy. Um, and in, in the cases that have been decided, the judges have been too reluctant to find the broad public interest in favor of the press when they report things that do engage the right to privacy. So they kind of feel they're losing on both parts of the, of the test. They're, they're losing on whether there's a right to privacy and there's, they're losing on whether they have a a free speech right that outbalances it. I mean, this takes us to a different aspect. I mean, to, to be clear, in the BBC case, what happened was that the police tipped off the BBC in advance that they were going to be doing this raid, and the BBC sent the helicopters up. And that sort of cosy, cosy relationship between the police uh, and journalists has been problematic over the years, and has sometimes been, not, not in that case, obviously, but in other cases, has been driven by payments to the police for inside information so that journalists could write stories and that's that's obviously objectionable but I think you've touched on another aspect which Tim and I have been interested in and which we discussed with Pia Sama um, the chief in-house lawyer for Times newspapers when she was on the podcast last year and, and that's that um, I agree with Tim I, I, I do think that 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 journalists in general think that this is a, a restriction on their ability to report matters 
in the public interest, although, of course, all the cases allow for public interest exceptions. But there does seem to be a very high degree of caution on the part of newspapers now in terms of publication. So we, Tim and I were very interested in asking Piers Sama about Tory MPs who had been arrested, were being investigated for serious sexual offences, including rape, were not attending Parliament and who were not being named. And we felt that there would be a clear public interest um, in the naming uh, of MPs in a situation where they weren't able to properly represent their clients. And indeed, uh, a few days ago, the police, the, sorry, the, the Times uh, published the name of one of these MPs, uh, Andrew Rossendell, who's being investigated for sexual offences and misconduct in a public office. But he's been on bail, not attending Parliament for months and months and months without his constituency, constituents having any uh, knowledge uh, about this. Um, I mean, it, it, don't you think there's a pretty obvious and powerful public interest argument in that sort of case that names should be published? Well, I mean, the question, Ken, is what is that sort of case? So to, to be fair to the, the, the media, there have been well-known examples of politicians, elected politicians, being named as the subject of police arrests and, and investigation. Uh, the mayor of Liverpool, Joe Anderson, was, was named in December 2020 in a fraud investigation. Uh, and of course, this year, Peter Murrell and Nicola Sturgeon were, were identified when they were arrested in, in Scotland in the investigation into the SNP uh, finances. So that's one type of case. I think, to be honest with you, the, the, the critical dividing line where public figures and politicians are concerned is the nature of the offence. You see, in those cases, what was being investigated was an offence directly related to their status as an elected politician and a public figure. Where sexual offences are alleged, it's slightly greyer because that can be seen to be relating to, to, to private life. But in, in the Rossendale case, there were valid public interest reasons, it seems to me, for, for running the story, and you des described the background. Most obviously, should the MP and, and their political party have told his constituency workers and the constituents of his position as an, someone who'd been arrested and was being investigated for sex offences and had by agreement stayed off the parliamentary state for 14 months and therefore not voted at all? Should they have been told, and specifically should they have been told before he was up for reselection, and should they have been told after he was reselected and had become a prospective parliamentary candidate and and if if the party and and the mp doesn't do that isn't it the role of the press to put those facts into the public domain the part the party should obviously have have revealed that it seems to be and i i, I just don't understand why it took the times or other newspapers so long to na to name this man well shall i shall i tell you something very interesting which <laughs> will interest tim because he was in bloomberg and I, and I was in bloomberg which is the leading authority in this that ended up in the supreme court Bloomberg gets cited to the press constantly by lawyers and potential claimants as a reason for not running particular stories. It is often cited on a misunderstood basis. In the Rossendale article, article if you read it carefully, the Tory party said it would have been unlawful for us as a party to tell the selection panel in that committee, in that constituency, what his position was. Now, Bloomberg is about being identified in the, in the media and the damage that causes to your reputation. People who are arrested and investigated are, are often the subject of knowledge and discussion in the workplace because the employer has an interest, social services may have an interest, family and friends may have an interest. Bloomberg doesn't stop you discussing the fact that, that somebody's been arrested and investigated if it's important for you to be able to do so. And that, it seems to me that would be a classic example of it. You would just say to the selection panel, Chatham House, we're telling you this. Don't go and tell it to a journalist or don't put it online, but you need to know this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I mean, I've lost count of the number of times I've had to correct people's understanding of this area of law. Uh, you've referred to the Bloomberg case, and just for people who aren't aware of it, it's a, it's a case that reached the Supreme Court judgment given uh, February of last year, 2022. It's called ZXC in Bloomberg. Now, ZXC was uh, a private person. He was worked for a, a, a company that at one point was a public company, but he was never on the board of directors. He himself was not a public figure, and he um, was under investigation for many years um, by a UK law enforcement body for fraud or corruption. 
And so that was the background to it. And in the end, the Supreme Court said that the starting point for someone in his position was a reasonable expectation of privacy in the fact he was being investigated, pre-charged, no charge made. Um, but it was a balancing exercise and there could be an alternative compelling public interest that would override the reasonable expectation of privacy. But the point about ZXE is he was a private citizen. The, the Tory MP example that we've just been discussing is a person who, who, who's standing for public office. Uh, it seems to be a completely different situation where, where once you go into public office or stand for it, you have to accept that your private life may well be exposed in a way which it otherwise wouldn't be. And I, I just, like Ken, I never understood why there was this reluctance to test ZXC as opposed to just accept, oh God, we can't publish anything. And, and and this must particularly be the case where the fact of the investigation prevents the person, the MP, from carrying out their constitutional functions, leaving leaving their constituents at least uh, in part unrepresented. I mean, I, I mean, I think we we just we we just puzzled by that, and I didn't really understand from what Pierce was saying what the the real reason was other than that it would be troublesome and costly to, to, to challenge these things. But that doesn't seem really, to me, to be an answer. But look, I think, I think we better, better move on because um, we obviously want to discuss the Hugh Edwards case in which a number of these principles uh, collide very dramatically. Um, I suppose the the, the the first question to ask is, do, do you think in the circumstances? I mean, in in the end, of course, he self-identified effectively through his through his wife. She named him, but for several days, and as time went by, more and more people knew the identity of this individual. The internet was awash with his name. It was very easy to discover it, uh, particularly after the BBC announced that the individual in question would be removed from his program during the currency of the investigation and Hugh Edwards miraculously disappeared from the news broadcast. I mean, this almost became a situation, it seems to be, in which the law, if the law was being correctly applied in non-identification, was being brought into disrepute because it was rather Canute-like, protecting something which had already been lost. I mean, do you think it was right not to identify him until such time as his family decided to self-identify him? Well, right on whose part, who would be doing the identifying? I think the the Sun took a, uh, an editorial decision that the story was worth running on the first day. Not for me to comment on that. I'm a lawyer, not an editor. But, but certainly I could have framed a valid public interest argument for the story they ran on the first day. And what would that have been, Gavin? Just, just summarise what that would have been if you were advising the Sun at that point. Oh, that, that, he's, that he's a prominent public figure, that his public figure carries with it um, a particular status. He'd presented, he'd announced the death of Her Majesty the Queen, he'd pre presented the coronation. He was, he is kind of being set up as the new Dimbleby. Um, you know, that at that level of status, you become an important and respected public figure in our society, in our, our democracy. And if there are issues about um, your conduct, which ultimately would have to be investigated but by the by the employer or the and or the police, uh, it's legitimate for the public to know those. Uh, certainly, without without expressly and explicitly identifying the presenter concerned, and and very often you you say, well, run the story without identification and see how it develops, um, because the public interest may develop in the story as the days go by. And, and indeed, in a sense, it did when it became apparent that it was Hugh Edwards. So your initial advice would have been you can run the story, but better not identify Hugh Edwards in the course of that story. That would have been your advice, would it? Well, well, not so much better not, but but why do you need to? You, you can serve, you can achieve the public interest objective of the story at this stage by putting that more limited set of facts yeah. into the public public domain and not identifying, in the sure knowledge that the story won't finish there, that it will develop over, over coming days. So, so the, the fact that the public might be interested in knowing his identity is not to be equated with there being a public interest in his identity uh, being known. But but that's and, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, 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 the initial story of the, of the Sun looks to me to have been slightly flimsy in the sense that they 
initially alleged that that photographs had been extracted from a 17 year old then they then they said uh, oh by the way we're not accusing anyone of having committed the crime which is an interesting uh, analysis following that allegation a bit like me saying you gavin miller have shot someone dead in cold blood but i'm not accusing you of murder and then they started to backtrack um, significantly from that. And then the police did what must have been the swiftest and most conclusive Metropolitan Police investigation of modern times, finding within 48 hours or so that, that no crime had been committed, presumably having spoken to the family and to the child who described the son's story uh, as being a load of rubbish. So th th their position looked a little bit shaky at that point, didn't it? Uh, I don't know if it, it looked shaky. I mean, the story was what it was. It didn't pretend to have an open source that it didn't have or a closed source that it didn't have it well it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't what it was because they they were claiming that photographs had been extracted from a 17 year old and if that had been the case a criminal offense would have been committed and the police would have said so so they were obviously wrong about that or there was or there wasn't enough evidence no i think they said photograph they said photographs had been obtained and that the relationship had okay. continued okay. from the age of 17 they didn't say that but can i just come back gavin on on the way you've put the public interest justification, because I think it's a bit, um, if I may say so, a bit flimsy, because um, it's a bit nudge nudge wink wink. We're going to we're going to identify that there is a high profile BBC presenter. We won't name him, but this is the allegation. At that stage, there was no police investigation, so uh, he wasn't under investigation. It was later that the uh, BBC referred the whole thing to the police. So arguably, the ZXC principle did not apply. You say there was a compelling public interest. I didn't say there was a. I didn't say that. I, I said I could have constructed a valid public interest. Let's let's be legal about this. <laughs> oh well, okay, sorry. You you you. But you said there was a sufficient public interest. Gavin, can I just say, I think, I think you've just given our, our listeners a distressing insight into the way lawyers' minds work. <laughs> okay, Gavin, after all, we are lawyers, yeah. Um, but, okay, but, but surely the point is this, were they worried from a libel point of view that they couldn't stand the story up because they didn't feel that the sources they had at that stage, the parents or the parent, were, were going to be good enough to, to defend a libel claim? In, in which case... What, what Was it responsible to do it at all in that way? And just to underline that, Tim, before Gavin answers, they'd, they'd contacted the young person in question before they published the story who denied that what was said to have happened happened, and they didn't include that denial in the story, which would make them even more worried in the face of a, a libel claim, I would have thought. Well, I, I, I wasn't involved in that. I, I, don't know, I don't know the facts. I've explained what I thought the valid public interest argument uh, was. The fact is... They fronted up the BBC. Nobody challenged them by way of pre-publication injunction application. Neither Hugh Edwards nor the BBC uh, moved to do that. Um, you, you, as an editor, I mean, again, I'm a lawyer. I'm not speaking as an editor. As an editor, you, you often look at the evidence that journalists have acquired and make a difficult judgment on the basis of that evidence, which will have some gaps in it and some strengths in it, about what you can say and how you can say it in the public interest, what is valid journalistically. That decision was taken. It was perfectly, in my view, a perfectly valid decision. You can agree or disagree with it, but it was on the basis of the information they had. So for an editor to say in that situation, it's not worth us risking libel proceedings or privacy proceedings to the much greater extent that we would be if we named the person in order to get the public interest issue up and running and discuss it in the public domain. Um, it's perfectly valid not to name, I, I think, in that situation. And of course, you take the risk that later on you'll be sued. You'll, you'll be sued on the jigsaw identification as the story develops. You may be sued if you don't take the story down, if it's online, that sort of thing. But, you know, you, you don't, you, you, you have to make a judgment of, of, of what you can properly put into the public domain and whether it's necessary to, to identify the person to get that point across. And, and clearly the view was taken that it wasn't worth, wasn't necessary to do that, and therefore wasn't worth taking the risk. That, that's an editorial decision. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it's a valid editorial decision. But do you agree with me, Gavin, um, that, that before the police were involved in investigating the allegations against Hugh Edwards, it was... 
in effect a straightforward, well, not straightforward, but it was a an employment dis disciplinary private in investigation into an allegations that the BBC were investigating. And arguably the ZXC decision is concerned with the expectation of, of privacy in relation to being a suspect in a criminal investigation conducted by the state, by the police. Uh, and therefore, that was not a reason for the Sun not to publish the name of Hugh Edwards from the outset, if they were, if they were sure of their story. Well, first of all, you, you're wrong in the way you characterise the story. You said it was a story about something the BBC were investigating. It was, in fact, a story about something the BBC were not investigating. That was the whole point of the story. Okay. Well, yeah, no, that's a fair point to make, yeah. <laughs> Six okay. weeks had passed and they weren't investigating it. Um, do, do I think, assuming your, yeah. hypo, your hypothetical yeah. case, which is the employer is actively investigating, um, does does Bloomberg apply? Does the general rule that, that there's a reasonable expectation of privacy uh, apply? Well, that's a fact sensitive issue. It depends what sort of investigation is is going on. Um, the the nub of the reasoning in Bloomberg was that to report in the mass media that somebody is a, a police suspect in that way is hugely damaging to their reputation. And as I say, particularly in relation to certain types of offences like sexual offences, which is what the Cliff Richard case was about, that may not necessarily always be the case with every other type of investigation, that there are some where reporting is going to be less damaging. And so in the case of the, and I'll just mention this, it's an interesting example. In the case of the FA's investigation into Ivan Tony, the Brentford and England football striker, who was investigated over a number of months for offences as a professional footballer of gambling and, and gambling on games, which you're not allowed to do. Um, there was an attempt by the, by the FA to prevent a newspaper reporting that investigation by analogy to Bloomberg. And it didn't happen because the new newspaper said, it's not really the same thing. It's not really the same thing to say of a footballer. It's not as damaging to their reputation say that of a footballer, as to identify somebody as the suspect of a police investigation, say, in a sexual offence. So it is a question of fact and degree. And, and I think one of the things the media worry about, as, as we've discussed, is that Bloomberg gets used in all kinds of other situations where it's not appropriate. I mean, the, the, the question, I suppose, is, I mean, I understand the position the Sun were taking at the outset, but as it became more and more common knowledge who this was, as it became known to I guess, hundreds of thousands of people who it was. Wasn't it then uh, increasingly surprising that, that he wasn't named by, by a newspaper outlet? And do you think they were right not to name him in that, him in, in that situation? Well, uh, there is a case which, which I was involved in called PJS, which ended up in the Supreme Court, where an injunction was retained in this jurisdiction, England and Wales, in respect of a story with names of participants that was known globally and known in other parts of the United Kingdom uh, and known to many people in this jurisdiction through social media. I mean, very many people was, was the evidence. But still, the Supreme Court said, well, you can't publish it as a newspaper and put it on the newsstand because of the intrusive and damaging effect on the privacy rights of the claimant and his, and his family. And it's hardly surprising. I'm not commenting on whether that was right or wrong, that is the law, but it's hardly surprising when that's the law that newspaper lawyers tell editors to hold fire on naming in that situation and, and don't jump in the way that, that you might be tempted to just because lots of people, are, because algorithms or individuals or bots or whoever it is are putting that name forward on social media. Yeah, I, I mean, the justification in that case, it was a case called a PJS against... Um, was it News International? I can't remember News Group. who it was. Yeah. News Group. Uh, but the justification that the Supreme Court advanced for maintaining the anonymity um, and the injunction to protect the identity of PJS, as the claimant was known, was that there is a fundamental dis difference of degree between being named on social media and being in a you know a tabloid uh, mass distribution daily newspaper, and that the consequences in terms of damage in the future to PJS's family, children, and so on, meant that there was still a justification for maintaining the anonymity, notwithstanding the fact that many people knew exactly who he was. 
Correct. That 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 is that is the reasoning. But the, the reason, the, one of the reasons, the press get very excised about this, and you will know this, is that when the Human Rights Act was enacted in Section Twelve Four, hmm. judges were um, exhorted. Just tell us what. Just tell us what Section Twelve Four says. Judges were exhorted by Section Twelve Four to consider whether the material that was being published and that was the subject of the claim and might be injuncted was uh, journalism in the public interest, and also the extent to which the particular piece of information was in the public domain already. And, and the press find it very difficult to understand why judges haven't been more willing to accept that in, 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 in our society, in the public domain means being discussed on social media. There seems to be a, 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 they think there's a reluctance to do that. Uh, and that, the significance of that provision has been underplayed by the judges in the years since the Human Rights Act, and and that was the issue at the core of PJS. Did did that get the did that provision get the press home, given the evidence about how much discussion there was on social media, identifying the person concerned and the, and the story in this jurisdiction? And and the, Lord Newberger said in in his judgment, look, this is an issue that we may have to revisit in years to come because. Injunctions against the mainstream media like this are increasingly going to be looked at as the courts playing King Canute. You know, as more and more people use social media and information circulates more freely, there is a risk the courts start looking looking silly. And I think the issue will have to be reconsidered. And I think cases like Hugh Edwards call for it to be reconsidered. I mean, I suppose the, the, the counter argument, the privacy argument, is that this is a situation in which the original story... Um, may not necessarily have stood up in the way that it was originally being suggested, particularly after the young person at the centre of it issued a statement through lawyers saying that it was, uh, quote, rubbish, uh, unquote. The, the police decided that no offences had been committed, having spoken to the family and to the young person, and the individual at the centre of it was suffering a serious mental breakdown and was hospitalised as a result of that breakdown. And in those circumstances, the, the civilised rule of law thing to do is not is not to name him to protect his privacy in the absence of crime and in the uh, given the existence of doubts about the original story so that's the the, the counter argument that the the law of privacy here is protecting someone from um, unwarranted uh, abuse yeah well you're advocating for the editor of the sun then aren't, aren't <laughs> yeah i'm not sure the ed- i'm not sure the editor of the sun loves the privacy law but what i'm saying is maybe um i mean i know that hugh tomlinson who's been a guest of ours in the past on um uh, on on double jeopardy well actually he's responsible for quite a lot of privacy law so i, I think that's the argument that he would be making <laughs> move um, to another case in which you have been involved, Gavin. You seem to have been in most of these cases, and this is the Carol uh, Calwadada case. Carol Calwadada w- was sued by Aaron Banks, the prominent uh, funder of uh, one of the Leave campaigns in the Brexit referendum. Uh, she'd uh, accused him, I think, in a TED talk and perhaps also in a, in a tweet, I can't remember, of uh, a particular relationship uh, with the Russians, and he took exception to that, and he sued her uh, for libel and she won at first instance uh, largely I think and then suffered a bit of a defeat on appeal but could you just tell us the background to that case and I'm interested in Tim and I are interested in, 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 in looking at this case in the context of SLAP strategic legal action against public participation these are legal actions which it said are intended to close down debate rather than to ventilate any particular legal issue of course the the judge in the in Carol's case, Mrs. Justice Stain categorically determined in her judgment that this wasn't a slap, that this was a case properly brought by Aaron Banks. And I think quite a lot of people had assumed that it might be a slap, but she said it wasn't. So what's your take on, on, on that aspect of the case? Well, I, we, at the time of that judgment, we didn't have an anti-slap law in this country and we didn't have a definition of what a slap was. So, And we still don't. And we, we, st- we still don't have an enacted definition. So, so whether you think the judge's view was right or not depends on what your, your personal definition of a, of a slap is. Plenty of people who consider it was a slap there are, on, on, the, on the facts and according to their understanding, uh, 
of a slap, but you really pays your money and takes your choice. I think on a, on, a, on a wider definition of a slap, you could say it was a slap. On a narrower definition of what a slap is, you could say it wasn't a slap. Let me just read the definition from the Economic Crime and Transparency Bill, which introduces a, uh, a definition for slaps in the economic crime area. And Section 194 says, uh, a claim is a slap if A, the claimant's behaviour in relation to the matters complained of in the claim has or is intended to have the effect of restraining the defendant's exercise of the right to freedom of speech. B. Any of the information that is or would be disclosed by the exercise of that right has to do with economic crime. C. Any part of that disclosure is or would be made for a purpose related to the public interest in combating crime. And D. Any of the behaviour of the complainant in relation to the matters complained of in the claim is intended to cause the defendant, one, harassment, alarm or distress, two, expense, or three, any other harm or inconvenience beyond that ordinarily encountered in the course of properly conducted litigation. Now, that's a pretty broad definition, isn't it? Well, it's, it's not a definition that I, that I would want to see adopted generally. It's, it's progress that we've got that. Um, and uh, even if it's only in one particular area of the law, one type of defamatory allegation, you know, to do with economic crime, it's progress because we can see that we are capable of legislating in that sort of way. Um, but the problem with, with those sorts of definitions is they end up going into the intention, purpose, motive of the claimant. And in, in the words you read out, you can see that in two of the subsections. And what happens on, a, on a, an early dismissal application inevitably is that you get witness evidence from the claimant saying, oh, no, subjectively, I think I'm acting entirely properly here and so on and so forth. And it's very difficult to go behind that um, uh, unless you've got an extreme set of facts. And, and that's not doing enough, you know, I mean, the, the, cur the current law on um, striking out for abuse of process requires you essentially... Um, to show an ulterior purpose unrelated to the subject matter of the litigation and that for the ulterior but for the ulterior purpose the claimant wouldn't have commenced the proceedings at all it's almost impossible to prove that against the witness statement from the claimant sorry let me just let me just read out the 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 section which deals with how you demonstrate there is this ulter ulterior motive which is subsection 4 of uh, section 194 and it says in determining whether any behavior of the claimant falls within the ulterior motive section subsections the court may in particular take into account a whether the behavior is a disproportionate reaction to the matters complained of in the claim including whether the costs incurred by the claimant are out of proportion to the remedy sought b whether the defendant has access to fewer resources with with with, with, with which to defend the claim than another person against whom the claimant could have brought but did not bring proceedings in relation to the matters complained of in the claim C, any relevant failure or anticipated failure by the claimant to comply with a pre-election protocol, rule of court or practice direction, or to comply with or follow a rule or recommendation of a professional regulatory body. So what that subsection seems to be targeting is bullying, bullying behaviour really outside the course of normal litigation. Yeah, well, I think that's too narrow. My, my problem with these, with these sort of checklist definitions in statutory provisions like this, particularly in this area where freedom of speech is an issue, where you're supposed to have a broad principled balancing of the reputational right against the public interest in, in, in the speech, is that clever claimant lawyers can stand up in front of a judge and go down the list and say, oh, well, judge, look, subsection A, that one's not there. Subsection C, that one's not there on the facts of our case. Subsection E, it's not there. And therefore, this, isn't, this is not a slap. And in, in, the, in, the, in the internal working of the section, they may be perfectly entitled and correct to argue that. But you're not ending up, you're ending up with a very bitty and difficult analysis of the case from the point of view of the defendant who's trying to escape the consequences of being sued for publishing something in the public interest um, in a way that you wouldn't if there was that much broader balancing exercise being done between... The, the social goods and the social evils in play if this case goes ahead and is litigated. Can I ask you, uh, not least because obviously you've been practising in this area for, for many years, what is different, this is my first question, what's different today from the decades, you know, decades ago when um, Robert Maxwell and Jimmy Goldsmith, wealthy, powerful people, were suing to suppress 
investigative journalism into their affairs. So that's my first question. The second one really relates to how you're going to effectively uh, support um, journalists who are conducting serious investigative journalism. And it isn't the reality that the way to deal with that is to abolish the costs rule so that uh, if you lose a libel claim or privacy claim, you don't have to pay the costs if if you're a journalist. So the courts have got some power to stop the normal rule in costs applying. And you put caps on the costs, you put caps on damages, or you even make it an area that's eligible for legal aid. So if you're a journalist who's being sued, uh, you're eligible for legal aid. So you don't have to suffer the risk uh, in terms of costs. I mean, aren't those the ways more effectively to protect freedom of expression? But anyway, those are my two points. So firstly, what's different? And secondly, is there not a more effective way of protecting freedom of expression than trying to define a slap in some legislative uh, definition? Yes, well, as far as the first one is concerned, uh, a lot has changed. I, I, don't, I don't want to be curmudgeonly about this. The Human Rights Act put a, a broad and, and strong right to freedom of expression, in, in quasi-constitutional right, into our law, and that's fed into libel law. We have a section for public interest speech defence, it's affected other aspects of, of the law of libel in favour of freedom of speech. And I, I, I don't want to be unfair to the judges. They're, they're much more conscious of, of that and of the need to balance reputation against free speech than they were in the, in the, in, in the, in the Goldsmith-Maxwell era, where they were much more, even, even more pro-reputation. Pro so, so that's all, all good. The problem is those tools to deal with um, unmeritorious attacks on public interest speech by journalists only really come into play later on in the proceedings. Proceedings are very long and drawn out in our High Court. They're incredibly expensive. I mean, they're vastly more expensive than any other. But that's my point about costs and legal aid and and so on. Sure. So whether we have an anti-slap law or not, we have to do something about both capping the cost a defendant may be liable to pay to make it possible for them to defend their, their speech in the public interest if, if the case isn't dismissed, uh, uh, you know, early, early on. And we also, one of the other aspects of a slap, which is extremely important, is you get a wealthy corporation or individual suing a less well-resourced defendant. They expand the issues in the case, in the pleadings, in the disclosure, in the argument. It becomes a a two-week case or a one-week case where it could be decided in in a day. And that becomes a tactic to put the defendant to expense and get them them to settle. It's a big, big problem in our law. And I think what is needed, we, we do have case management, but we don't have robust and strong enough case management in freedom of speech cases. And I think what's needed is for judges to, to, to be more proactive and more robust and more protective of freedom of speech in the way they confine the issues in the case with one eye on the risk that this is what's happening, you know, this is what the claimant is doing, and really force the, the claimant to get to the nub of the case and try the case on that basis, which will dramatically lower the costs if it's done properly and will shorten the proceeding. But if, Car- if Carol Cadwallader was on legal aid, uh, there, would, there wouldn't have been the anxiety, would there? I mean, if, if a serious investigative journalist could qualify for legal aid, who, in other words, someone who's being sued as an individual journalist as opposed to a wealthy media company who can afford to pay the cost, but why shouldn't an individual journalist be eligible for legal aid? I mean, that would be one way of protecting their ability to, to publish. Well, I agree, but I, th- I think most of us think, from the way legal aid law has gone and what's in scope and what's outside of scope, that you're wasting your time asking. asking it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I think, I think. I mean, Tim's right. Obviously, the, the, the good old days were actually the bad old days. I mean, J- James Goldsmith famously nearly put Private Eye out of business through a very bullying series of uh, cases he brought against that magazine. And Robert Maxwell used to do the same. So uh, if such a thing as slaps exists, they, they've always existed. There may be more of them now. I don't know. The Solicitor's Regulation Authority, when it conducted a survey recently, wasn't able to come up with very many. But I wonder... Whether- can I just interrupt there? I mean, the, um, we have discussed this before. The issue is not the cases they may know about. It's the, case, it's the stories that get spiked by journalists and don't get into the public domain for fear of being sued. That, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I, I, I understand that. I understand that. But it seems to me one of the problems here is the extent to which the judge can genuinely be 
empowered and is is genuinely capable of making decisions to dismiss cases at, at an early at an early stage at a at a very early stage in proceedings. I mean, when 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 it's an obvious case, then then that's possible. I mean, Mr. Justice Nicklin recently uh, found that a case brought by a very wealthy businessman called a Mercy against a former Conservative MP was a slap. It was an abusive piece of litigation and he, he found, he identified some factors which, which funny enough, are mirrored in the, the bill that I, the clause of the bill that I've just read out. I mean, that's fine when it's very obvious, but arguably when it's very obvious already, a judge would do that. It's not, it's not clear to me that legislation is going to empower judges in very many cases to dispose of cases right at the beginning before they've heard the evidence. It would have to be a startlingly obvious case, and those sorts of cases would probably get picked up anyway, wouldn't they? No, I don't agree. I mean, I think if the definition of a slap is broad enough or the balancing exercise is broad enough um, and judges are prepared to do that, you, you could do that. I mean, you, you, you may be limiting the, the opportunity for the claimant to sue, but there are other ways for claimants particularly rich and powerful claimants, to, to get, their, get their response into the public domain than suing a journalist in libel. OK, well, Gavin, look, it's been a, a fascinating discussion. I think we better end it there. Thank you um, very much for joining us. One of the things that Tim and I wanted to discuss this week and haven't had time to discuss is the new National Security Act and the failure of Parliament to insist on a, a public interest defence as recommended by the Law Commission and the ramification that that might have for free speech and journalists. We haven't got time for that today, but perhaps you'll come back uh, for a future episode and we can devote that to the new National Security Act, which is obviously a hugely important piece of legislation. But for the meantime, Gavin, thank you very, very much for joining us on Double Jeopardy. Thank you. Yes, thanks very much, Gavin. Uh, we hope to have you back soon. You've been listening to Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with Ken McDonald and with me, Tim Owen. If you've enjoyed this episode, go back to our homepage on wherever you listen to your podcasts and check out our back catalogue. It includes guests such as Professor Kathleen Stock, Baroness Brenda Hale, Dominic Grieve, Edward Fitzgerald, David Panic, Claire Montgomery and Professor Richard Eakins and the list goes on. Uh, this is our 35th episode. Uh, we've been broadcasting now for almost a year. We've got a five-star rating on Spotify and a 4.9 rating on Apple. And many of our episodes are not time-sensitive, so scroll through the archive to find something that interests you. We'll be back with you in a week or so, and we look forward to being with you there. Our editor is Billy Lawrence, and our social media advisor is Jess Jones. See you soon. <laughs>